You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. This evening, if you have your copies of God's Word, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We return here, this chapter where scripture is zooming in. Chapter 1 was the creation of all things, the creation of heaven and earth. And chapter 2, it zooms in on the creation of man. And it helps instruct us, who are we? What is our purpose? What were we made for? And we come this evening to the creation of woman. So we see man and woman clearly before us this evening. So, Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. and While he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. As you may already be thinking, as we've just read the text, this passage is one of the seminal passages that lays the foundation for a whole host of issues. And these are a whole host of issues that are debated in our world today. As we've seen in Genesis 1 and 2 so far, creation was made with a direction. Creation was given a a particular design by God with a purpose. There's a natural order embedded in creation that helps us understand first how, how creation ought to function and how it ought to be used, how to rightly utilize the world around us. But understanding this natural order helps us to know how to honor our creator. The very nature of man and woman is at stake today, is debated in our world And so this evening, we're not going to fully flesh out the the biblical position here, but we will do it enough to show that God is not silent on these matters, on the questions of gender and sexuality and how we live our lives under his authority. In chapter 1, verse 27, we are told that God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And really, our passage tonight is an expansion of that idea. Male and female, he created them in the image of God. Both are in the image of God, both male and female. 
And so we see how that came to be. And it's interesting, as you compare the Genesis creation account with other ancient creation accounts, there's oftentimes a lot of similarities. And of course, that makes sense. If the biblical narrative is true, of course, the the truths would reverberate through all kinds of people throughout the world. And so their creation accounts would share similarities. But what they do not share is any, none of them have an account of the creation of woman. For them, it's all secondary. It doesn't really matter. But this significant passage, no matter how, depending on how you count it, five, six, seven verses here, are particularly about the creation of woman, giving her dignity and honor that other cultures failed to do. But we come at the beginning of this section, verse 18, with the first narrative tension, a real crisis in the text, because we have, it is not good. It is not good, and so now a solution is going to be sought. But ultimately, we're going to see God created men and women as a demonstration of the son's redemptive love for his bride, his people. So we're heading that direction. But first, what we're going to do is look at this narrative arc, the tension and and then how it's resolved. And then second, we will look at the application for us. So let's first look look at the narrative arc of these few verses that we have looked at. The problem is right at the beginning. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. There's a problem on the scene. This is compared to days one through five of creation. After each day, God said it was good. But here we have, as it were, in the midst of day six, waiting for that very good pronouncement at the end, there is a problem. It is not good what has happened. Man does not have his counterparts. He is alone. Now, why is it not good that man is alone? Well, I think first it's because Adam cannot fulfill the mandate given to him. The mandate was to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. He couldn't do that alone. He was unable to. So his mandate required a helper. And the second reason here we see is that Adam was meant to live in community. Adam was not intended, mankind was not a intended to live solitary lives without interaction with other people. It is not good to be alone. Yes, for the sake of the mandate, but also we were meant to be social beings, to know others and to be known by them. It is not good for Adam to not be known by another. So God says he needs a helper. Helper. Now, when we hear this word, we shouldn't first think of an assistant, somebody who's subservient or lesser. This word helper is not another word for a servant. But it is a word. It's a very strong word that indicates support and aid and assistance from somebody in a position of strength. It does not indicate, it does not have any undertones or overtones of, of being subservient or lesser than. This word was used, is used about 20 times in the Old Testament. And mostly, it is a word to describe God as our help. And usually, it has military overtones with it. Here's a few examples. Listen to this, Psalm 33, verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Deuteronomy 33, it's a prayer. Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and be a help against his adversaries. God is the one being called to be this help, the the helper, to deliver in a military situation. Or Psalm 121, verses one and two. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my 
help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Man's help is God. Our helper is God. But here, Adam needs a helper, one who is strong, one one who can work with him, who can assist him, that is fit for him. See, God says it's not just any help, but a help that is particularly fit, made for him, corresponding to him, complementary to him, is what this phrase is getting across. So this is the particular kind of helper that Adam needs, not a simple assistant who will be at his beck and call, but somebody from a position of strength who will come and work with him and be on his team. He needs someone corresponding and complementary to him. So there are two solutions, two solutions. The first one is presented in verse 19. The first solution is the animals. And we see here God bringing all the animals that he had made and bringing them to Adam, bringing them forward to him. And we see this word brought, He brought all the animals before Adam. And so Adam here, these animals are coming as a a parade, as it were, in front of Adam. And Adam here is called to name them. Now, naming is part of his, uh, some would say, his prophetic ministry. As a prophet, Adam was to speak. And here speaking, he is naming the animals. He's given authority over the animals. Giving name, giving a name to them, is exercising the authority that he has. But as he's doing this naming, as all the animals are coming forth in front of him, He's evaluating, is this the helper fit for me? Is this the one that God has designed for me? Is this the one God has made to be my helper, to fulfill the mandate, to be a companion? And as maybe as much as some of you love your pets and maybe your dogs particularly, none of them were man's best friend. None of them were fit for him. Because we come to the end of verse 20 and it says, for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. He has looked at all the animals of the world. He has named them all. He has identified them all. He knows them all. He has exercised his authority over them and none of them are fit for him. Now, it's not that God didn't know who should be paired with Adam, but God is taking Adam through these steps so that Adam would know definitively what he needed as his complement. And so as God presents the second solution, Adam would know for sure this is right. And so we come to the second solution, verses 21 through 25. And this is the creation of woman. And many of us know this story well, as you've heard it many times. Maybe you've taught it to your children. or Maybe you've grown up hearing it in Sunday school. A story where God puts Adam into this deep sleep and pulled out a piece of his side, his rib, as the ESV translates it. And out of this rib, he builds Eve. You see the ESV does footnote this word. He, he made the rib into a woman. It's actually the word for build. He built a woman out of this rib, out of a piece of his side. He built a helper to correspond to him. I think it's important to note that the New Testament, and Paul particularly in several places, makes a point about the importance of man being created first. And it makes a point about this, and you can go read about this elsewhere, and you can read about this in the New Testament later. But he makes a point repeatedly that it does indicate something about a man, particularly in marriage, having authority. Having authority over his wife. 
And Matthew Henry acknowledges this. And then he goes on to say, and make, makes another point about man being made first and woman second. He said, yet man being made last of the creatures as the best and most excellent of all, Eve's being made after Adam and out of him puts an honor upon that sex as the glory of the man. If man is the head, she is the crown. A crown to her husband, the crown of the visible creation. The man was dust refined, but the woman was dust double refined. One remove further from the earth. There is also a glory to the woman as she is now created out of man, a beauty and excellence. She is the crown of all the creation. She is the final piece of God's artwork of all of creation. She indeed is the crown upon the head. And so it is important to note the order of man and then woman. But another part of this creation does show us something significant, and that is the very fact that God made her, built her out of Adam's rib. Now, maybe we're pushing this too far, and so we should say this something somewhat cautiously. But Matthew Henry, again, I think, makes a beautiful reflection on this fact. And, and I think he's reflecting some ancient Jewish commentary to the same effect. Matthew Henry says this, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal to him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. I think that's such a beautiful picture right in the middle of the person, out of the, the middle of Adam's body was woman made. So that no, he's not his feet to be trampled upon by him, not out of his head so that she would rule over him, not anywhere else but out of his side to be equal, to be a partner, to work with him, indeed to be protected by him and to be loved by him. I think that is such such a beautiful statement. And I think it's exactly true as we speak of the relationship between man and woman. And so we have God in the same way that he brought the animals to Adam. He brought the woman to him. He brought her before him. And so we have at the end of verse 22, the woman now standing before the man. And there's a little bit of tension. We can pause before we go to verse 23. What will Adam's response be? This one who was made out of his very rib, God brought to him. And he's looked at every animal on earth and said, no, this is not right. This does not fit. But will this one fit? And his response comes in verse, 20, 20, verse 23. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is the helper corresponding to him, made of his very flesh and bones, but not identical to him. One that corresponds to him one that is complementary to him, one that is fit for him. This is the first piece of poetry in all of scripture. You can see it set off in the ESV with the, the indentions. This is real poetry where, where Adam is speaking gloriously of this great creation, his now wife that God made. And then he exercises authority in the second half of verse 23. And he again names her. He has named all the animals and now he names her. She shall be called woman 
She was taken out of man. In the same way, English words woman and man are sound similar. Um, in the same way, the Hebrew words for woman and man sound similar. So it's a play on words here. Isha, the woman, and Ish, the man, he names her. Exercising his authority as, yes, covenant head of the whole human race, but as the husband as well. And so we come after this, this great, beautiful uh, statement, poetry of Adam, we see before us the first marriage. We see the husband and wife in this beautiful new bond. They are corresponding to one another and they fit. And this is exactly who Adam needs. This is exactly who Eve needs for companionship in order to fulfill the mandate given to them. And so verses 24 and 25 reflect on the marriage union. Verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Leaving and cleaving, leaving your old family and now holding fast to a new family, to your spouse. This this holding fast language is covenant language. There's now a covenant where you are bound together. As Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no man bring asunder. This is a joining of two people into one flesh in marriage. One flesh language certainly has physical and sexual overtones, but it's a deeper reality that defines the completeness of the marriage bond. In verse 25, it's the final words in Scripture before sin enters the world. It's a statement of of the, the, the joy that Adam and Eve shared together in the garden of of the contentment that they had in their relationship. This is creation being very good. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is going to become a big point in chapter three, the nakedness as they understand sin and that they are sinners. Nakedness now is a terrifying thing before an almighty God. But here, pure and undefiled, there's no shame. It's joy, it's contentment, it's enjoying God and enjoying this bond of marriage. So the tension has been resolved. It has ended with the proclamation of very good. So what does this mean for us today? How do we apply this to us? I have a number of things here. First, the importance of nature. Importance of nature, a category that our world rejects more and more every day, that nature, the way God has ordered the universe, is determinative. And our given sexuality by nature is good. Male and female are determined by nature, a God working through ordinary generation. Male and female are not determined by my subjective intuitions. Though sin distorts our perceptions and our experiences, we cannot deny our given nature. The category of nature is lost in our world today. But we must realize God made the world with a purpose and a direction and a meaning and an intended use. And we cannot lose the category of nature Second, marriage is monogamous 
and heterosexual. Marriage is monogamous and heterosexual. Two people only are to enter the bond of marriage. This is a man and a woman together, two people. And this, this, this marriage bond is lifelong. This is a one flesh union, not a union that can be ripped apart at anybody's desire. It is lifelong, brought together by God and consummated as a one flesh union. And marriage is only to be between one man and one woman. This corresponding to language is important. Male and female are not identical. And that's very important biologically. And that is the purpose of the marriage union. In a few weeks time, we'll go into this in some more detail in Sunday school to think about these things more particularly, but we're looking more at a high level here. One man and one woman corresponding to one another in the marriage union. It is not a free-for-all to decide who anybody can be in whatever marriage with anybody that they like. It's monogamous, lifelong, one man and one woman, heterosexual. Our sexuality is designed to come to fruition in marriage and only in marriage. This is the safe bond that God has created so that sexuality can be expressed in its deepest and most intimate form for the good of everyone for the good of the husband and the wife, the good of the children, the good of society. It is within this bond that sexuality was designed to come to deepest fruition. Third, men and women complement one another. Men and women complement one another. In other words, they correspond to one another. They are fitting for one another. Men and women are different, but they're not different beings. They're still one human race, both in God's image But there is a difference. There are important differences between male and female. And the importance here, the text draws out, is that we need each other. Particularly, the the spotlight is is on marriage here. Male and female need one another in marriage for procreation. But this is also true generally. We also we need each other, male and female. It is not good for the church if males and females are always in opposite corners. It is good to hear other people and to know their perspectives and their thoughts. We're different, and that's good. And we can learn from one another, and we need one another because we are complementary to one another. I do think it's important to note that the New Testament has a particular emphasis on the importance of singleness as a vocation. So what we shouldn't be doing this evening is to now think that if I'm not married, I'm not in a normal state of being. That is not true, and particularly, again, in the New Testament. Paul says he would rather people be single like him so they can commit themselves to serving others in a way that married people cannot. And so singleness is an important vocation in the church, whether singleness by by choice or singleness by God's providence. So none of this undermines the dignity and the importance of those who are not married in the church and in society. Fourth, the fourth application, it is important for us to maintain biblical faithfulness in our world. It is important for us as Christians to maintain biblical faithfulness in our world. We are called to live consistent with God-created nature and aims for our own gender. This is the calling of the Christian. We're called to live in accordance with nature, with who we were made to be by God. 
We are a witness to the world that there is a creator and that we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to him. He is the one that calls us to live a particular way. And so by obeying him, we are witnessing to the world there's something greater than even my own desire. It is honoring and serving him. We're also witnessing to the world of the goodness of being obedient to our creator. It is good to obey him. It is good to honor him. And also, and, and, and additionally, as we obey him, it is good for us and for the human race, for society, for the church. This, will, this brings a natural blessing upon us as we use our bodies and our relationships as they were designed from the beginning. So there's a lot here. Covered a lot of ground very quickly. But I think we would be remiss if we don't, we were looking kind of very narrowly at who we are right here, right now, our relationships with one another, and that's absolutely important and absolutely critical. But for our final few moments here, I want us to take our eyes up for a minute because ultimately our sexuality, latent in our sexuality are eternal realities. Our sexuality actually shows forth eternal truths. It shows us something even greater than our sexuality. Because salvation is likened to a marriage feast, as we read earlier from Revelation, where Christ the groom comes for his bride, the church. And as you well know, in Ephesians 5, Paul says that marriage was designed to show us a picture of Christ and his church. So a loving, faithful husband is to be a picture of Christ to the world, and particularly to his wife. This Genesis chapter 2 is really a great wedding. It's a great wedding that we see of the first man and the first woman. It's the second chapter of the Bible. But this great wedding of Genesis 2 gives way to the heavenly wedding of Revelation 21, the second to last chapter in the Bible. There's a great wedding feast where Christ comes to make everything right, to wash and purify his church, to bring the final realization of the highest and greatest joy to his people, where Christ brings redemption to its final consummation. And it's not accidental that God, is in, in designing his scripture and causing his scripture to be written that the second chapter has the great wedding feast and the second to last chapter has the great heavenly wedding feast. This is important for us to see that our relationships, that our marriages are designed to point us to Christ. And indeed, your relationship to marriage right now leads you, it should lead you to yearn for the great and the final marriage. For some, their marriage is a heavy weight. It's difficult. It's full of trial and tribulation. And that leads us to a deeper, greater anticipation of the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Because we know what marriage isn't, shouldn't be like. And we yearn for the great husband who will love us as we ought to be loved. For some, the joy of marriage in this life leads to great anticipation of that same marriage supper of the Lamb knowing that now the joy that's experienced in marriage is nothing compared to the greatest joy that we will have in Christ. It's a small window of joy into eternity. 
And for some, the longing to be married in this life will be fully and completely fulfilled in the inbreaking of the blissful, contented, heavenly union we share with Christ. The longings, the, the deep yearnings of those who do not desire their state of singleness right now is leading them to see the glories of the final union, the marriage supper of the Lamb with Jesus Christ. So as we conclude, let marriage now, your experience of it even now, be a signpost to you. Let it be that window into heaven. Even the greatest marriages are, are nothing compared to the marriage of Christ and his church and the joy experienced there. And let this be a call to live consistently with our nature, consistently with how we were created so that we, as we see the great groom, Jesus Christ, preparing his church, preparing his people by sanctifying her, strengthening her, and readying her for eternity. So yes, marriage calls us the right here and right now. Our sexuality calls us right here and right now to live a particular way, but it shows us even more who the great groom is, his love for his people, that he is coming. And he will be here soon. And we will enjoy forever the marriage supper of the lamb in heaven. Let us with anticipation look to him in prayer. Father, we thank you that we have the greater promise of the greater wedding feast to come, that all of those who look to Christ by faith will be partakers of that. And as we have read, all the tears will be wiped away. The deep eternal joy that will never ebb and flow will fill our hearts forever and ever. We will enjoy you and enjoy your people. I pray that you would help us yearn for that and see a beautiful picture of that even in the midst of our own circumstances in life right now. And as we are here on this earth, as our days remain, may you find us faithful to you with our own sexuality. May we honor you and glorify you that you would be praised among all people. Thank you, O Lord, for our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.